welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Friday, February 23rd through Tuesday the 27th feature guest conductor Anu Limtu and piano soloist Bezad Abdurangov. The program includes music by Kaya Saryaho, Ciel d'Hiver, Piano Concerto No. 1 by Tchaikovsky, the prelude to Kovancina by Mussorgsky, and Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on Kaya Saryaho's Ciel d'Hiver, a work lasting about 10 minutes. These are the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances. One of Finland's most acclaimed composers since Sibelius, Saryaho rarely lived in Finland. After graduating from the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, she went to Freiburg, Germany to study with British composer Brian Ferniho, and then in 1982 she moved to Paris where she was living when she died last year. The move to France proved liberating. It was like leaving your parents' home for the second time, she said. I love our culture, but in every domain there was always one wise old guy with a bald head, the male authority, whose aesthetics or politics ruled. In music, there was Sibelius, in architecture, Alvar Aalto, and then there was President Kekkonen, who led the country for 25 years. I felt squeezed to be something that I am not. In Paris, Saryahu became the composer she wanted to be, one who mixed in an unusually personal way the bracing austerity of the Nordic musical tradition with the delicacy and supple textures of French art. Saryahu initially went to Paris to work at ERCOM, the hotbed of musical experimentation set up by Pierre Boulez, and it opened a new chapter in her composing life. She began to explore the subtleties of musical color and, with the assistance of computer technology, to study what makes sound work, a preoccupation that continued throughout her career. During this time, she started writing works that mixed acoustic and electronic music in provocative ways. In Freiburg, Saryaho had become something of an ascetic, caught up in a disciplined regimen of composition. The richness of life in Paris shocked her at first, and she couldn't believe the excitement and pleasure Parisians found in their city. Even the busiest people take one and a half hours for lunch, she noted with dismay. The experience of living there began to change her, loosening horribly strict tendencies. Her music grew more complicated, but also richer, as she began to develop a singular style that reflected not only her background and training, but also her identity as a composer fully engaged with the modern world. Perhaps it has something to do with the landscape, she says, but Finland is a very uniform country, whereas in Paris I felt good about how diverse the city was. There was a possibility for me to exist as I am. In later years, Saryaho started writing for voice, a shift in direction that culminated in her first opera, L'Amour du Duin, Love from Afar, which premiered to great acclaim at the Salzburg Festival in 2000 in a production by Peter Sellers and in its American premiere at the Santa Fe Opera in 2002 and won Saryaho the prestigious Grahmeyer Award. 
In April 2008, Northwestern University School of Music named Kaya Sariaho the winner of the Nemers Prize in Music Composition, citing her achievement in transforming avant-garde techniques into a world of luminous, shifting color and emotional depth, mirroring the human experience. Sariaho's fifth and final opera, Innocence, about a shooting incident at an international school in Helsinki, premiered at the 2021 Aix-en-Provence Festival to great acclaim. Ciel d'hiver, Winter Sky, is an arrangement of the second movement from Orion, which the Chicago Symphony Orchestra performed in 2010. Composed in 2002, shortly after La Mort de Noir, Orion was the largest piece of purely orchestral music Sariaho had written at that time. In 2002, the Chicago Symphony played Du Cristal, her first work for orchestra dating from 1989. Written in three movements, Orion takes as its subject the adventurous hunter of Greek mythology who was placed in the sky as a constellation after his death. In the three-movement score, Sariaho explores the dualities of the two Orions, the myth of the murdered son of Neptune and the constellation that bears his name, the kinetic hunter and the fixed heavenly body. Ciel d'hiver, based on Sariaho's second movement, is a tapestry of individual voices, beginning with the piccolo. Sariaho regularly writes for the orchestra as if it were a mirror of modern society. It's such a concentration of human culture, energy, and history in all its aspects and extremely detailed, she once said, 80 to 100 musicians, all with their own experience of music-making. The music remains serene and contemplative, even as the orchestral textures thicken into densely woven polyphony, a night sky cluttered with stars. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Ciel d'Hiver by Kaya Sariaho. And now on to Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, a work lasting about 33 minutes. In a famously wrong snap judgment, Nikolai Rubinstein said that Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, a concerto the composer wanted him to play, was worthless and, in fact, unplayable. Rubinstein, the director of the Moscow Conservatory and normally an ardent champion of Tchaikovsky's works, he conducted the world premieres of the early symphonies and Romeo and Juliet, was not only the best pianist in Moscow, but also a first-rate all-round musician, Tchaikovsky later said, explaining why he had approached Rubinstein in the first place. Tchaikovsky met with Rubinstein at the Moscow Conservatory on December 24, 1874. After playing through the first movement, the composer was greeted with complete silence. If only you knew, he later wrote to Najda von Neck, what a foolish and unbearable situation it is to offer a friend a dish one has cooked oneself and to have that friend eat and say nothing. Undeterred, though clearly rattled, Tchaikovsky played on to the end of the concerto. Then Rubinstein didn't mince words, declaring that the concerto was impossible to play, that the passages were hackneyed, clumsy, and so awkward that there was no way even to correct them, that as a composition it was bad, vulgar. Except for two or three pages, Rubinstein ventured the score had to be completely redone. Angry and deeply wounded, Tchaikovsky left the room without responding. 
Later that evening, Rubenstein went to see him at home and, without softening his original appraisal, proposed that if the composer made numerous radical changes, he would reconsider performing it. Tchaikovsky replied, I will not change a single note and will publish it exactly as it is now. On January 9th, Tchaikovsky wrote to his brother Anatoly that he had fallen into a great depression over the holidays. There is no one here whom I might call a friend in the true sense of the word, he continued, pointedly referring to Rubinstein, whom until recently he had considered one of his closest friends, and he admitted that he was still recovering from the blow to his composer's pride. That winter, however, he sent the piano concerto to Hans von Bülow, a pianist and conductor best known for his championship of Wagner's music. He led the premieres of both Tristan und Isolde and Die Meistersinger. The ideas are so original, so noble, so powerful, Bülow wrote back, and the details so interesting. Though there are many of them, they do not impair the clearness and unity of the work. The form is mature, ripe, and distinguished in style. Although Bülow had retired from the concert stage during the 1860s, after his wife Cosima left him for Wagner, and had only recently resumed his career, he now became the dedicatee of the concerto and agreed to play the premiere of the work in Boston, where it was advertised as a grand concerto. To Boston is reserved the honor of its initial representation and the opportunity to impress the first verdict of a work of surpassing musical interest, the local announcement boasted, unaware that Rubinstein had already done so. The day after the premiere, Bülow sent what is thought to have been the first cable ever dispatched from Boston to Moscow, telling Tchaikovsky of the concerto's undisputed triumph with the Boston public. The concerto has been overwhelmingly popular ever since, and in 1941, it even inspired a hit song, Tonight We Love, which was rather unscrupulously hacked from its broad opening phrases. The concerto's celebrated introduction with its radiant string melody riding over the piano's thunderous chords is both its best known and most puzzling concept. After a dramatic horn call, Tchaikovsky establishes the wrong key of D-flat major and then introduces a theme so splendid, so complete, and so satisfying as it stands that despite audience expectations, it will never return. Although this makes for a potentially lopsided design with the most familiar music over before the concerto proper begins, Tchaikovsky's subsequent material is of such dazzling color, flair, and orchestral brilliance that the remainder of the score is not a letdown, even after such a breathtaking opening chapter. The main body of the first movement, it begins with nervous, jumping passage work, introduces a clarinet melody Tchaikovsky said he heard played by an itinerant musician at a local fair. This is a large, finely detailed movement filled with characteristic Tchaikovskyan touches like the barrages of quadruple octaves in the piano solo and capped by an expansive cadenza. The remaining two movements are brief in comparison. The Andantino is part slow movement, part scherzo. It's all lightness and effortless charm. The main theme of the playful midsection is based on Il faut s'amuser et rire, laugh and enjoy yourself, a chanson associated with Belgian soprano Desiree Artaud, whom Tchaikovsky courted in the late 1860s and at least for a few days even thought of marrying. 
The finale includes a Russian dance derived from a Ukrainian melody and ends with a majestic coda that manages to match the grandeur and sweep of the concerto's opening without once recalling its main theme. A postscript on first impressions, it didn't take long for Nikolai Rubinstein to admit his mistake, and shortly after the premiere, he began to play the concerto with great success. Quote, what was impossible in 1875 became thoroughly possible in 1878, Tchaikovsky observed. He quickly became a celebrated interpreter of the work, and the composer and the pianist-conductor renewed their friendship. After Rubinstein's death in 1881, Tchaikovsky composed a piano trio in his honor and dedicated it to the memory of a great artist. Program notes on the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto Number 1. And now on to program notes by guest annotator Daniel Jaffe on Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 9, a work lasting about 27 minutes. By the end of the Second World War, Shostakovich was not only a national hero, but he also was an international celebrity due to his Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad. Famously written mostly in Leningrad during the city's first year of siege, its propaganda value was instantly recognized. Copies of the score were flown from the Soviet Union to such high-profile conductors as Henry Wood, then chief conductor of London's proms, and Arturo Toscanini. The work was even heard in Leningrad itself, still under siege after 11 months and with several thousands having died from starvation. A scratch symphony orchestra was recruited for a performance broadcast on August 9, 1942, demonstrating that the city's spirit had not been crushed. Shostakovich's next symphony, the bleak and ferocious Eighth, disappointed Soviet officials who had hoped for a more triumphant sequel since the war's tide had turned in the Red Army's favor. Realizing that the nightmarish world of the Eighth needed to be counterbalanced as early as the spring of 1944, Shostakovich told a Moscow journalist of his plans for the Ninth. I would like to employ not only a full orchestra, but a choir and soloists if I can find a suitable text. In any case, I don't want to be accused of drawing presumptuous analogies. What Shostakovich had in mind, of course, was Beethoven's mighty choral symphony. In subsequent interviews, he further intimated that his ninth was to be the triumphal final part to a symphonic trilogy begun by the Leningrad. Expectations were high, and indeed it seemed Shostakovich was to fulfill them when, in January 1945, he demonstrated to his Moscow Conservatory students the exposition of a new orchestral work. A week later, when asked about the work's progress, he explained that he was making slow progress as the symphony opened with a big tutti, and he was writing straight into full score. That month, he admitted to his friend Isaac Glickman, I am not composing anything since I live in such appalling conditions. From 0600 to 1800, I am deprived of two basic forms of convenience, water and light. It's particularly difficult without these conveniences between 1500 and 1800. It's already dark by then. Kerosene lamps give little light and my eyesight is bad. My nerves go to pieces because of this darkness. And then at 1800, they turn on the light. But by that joyful moment, my nerves are so tautly wound up that I cannot pull myself together. Even so, in late April, Shostakovich played about 10 minutes of the work on the piano to Glickman, who recalled it as majestic in scale, in pathos, in its breathtaking motion. 
And then in July, Shostakovich scrapped that symphony and embarked on writing a draft score of the Ninth as we know it. By August 2nd, he was in Moscow writing a fair copy of the first movement, completing this three days later. He composed the other four movements, first in draft, then in fair copy, at the composer's House of Creativity in Ivanovo, completing the whole work on August 30th. A possible clue to Shostakovich's frame of mind is provided in the diary of Daniel Zitomirsky, who witnessed Shostakovich composing the Ninth in the front garden of his quarters at Ivanovo on a board nailed down on top of poles driven into the ground. Zitomirsky had met Shostakovich and his wife at Ivanovo Rail Station. On the way back here, Dmitry Dmitrievich first told me about the uranium bomb of the inconceivable, terrible catastrophe of Hiroshima. He spoke in short, quick phrases, the husky, pinched tone of his voice, his absent gaze and pallid complexion all transmitted his distress. We then walked in silence to his little dacha. I thought in bewilderment about Hiroshima and of the complexities of this moment in time, even though the war had ended for us, and wondered what the near future had in store. I started to give voice to my despondency, but Dmitri Dmitrievich, his eyes fixed on some point overhead, quickly cut short my lamentations. Our job is to rejoice. Clearly, news of Hiroshima's bombing, which had taken place on August 6th, made the prospect of writing a conventional celebratory work even harder to stomach. Yet it is known that Shostakovich drafted the score of what became the Ninth Symphony in July, some weeks before. Possibly, he had written this as a break from the strain of writing a work on which so much expectation was writing. The news of Hiroshima had then resolved him to making this his ninth symphony instead of the grandiose work he had hitherto promised. The opening of its first movement was described approvingly by one of Shostakovich's colleagues as Mozart-like, though its forebear is clearly that of Prokofiev's classical symphony. Its second subject is a strutting march led by Piccolo, whose apparently innocent theme gains a darker and more sinister character as it is increasingly taken up by the brass as the movement develops. The slow second movement starts with a wan clarinet solo supported by cello and bass pizzicato. The strings take up this theme and the movement becomes increasingly Mahlerian with Nachtmusik-style horn fanfares. In complete contrast is the following scherzo, sparkling and light-footed in the tradition of Tchaikovsky's Second Symphony or Berlioz's Queen Mob Scherzo. Something of the quality of Italian comic opera is introduced by a swaggering trumpet solo. This leads, without a break, into the Largo, pompously started by low trombones and tuba. A solo bassoon, rambling like a morose drunkard, plays a melody vaguely reminiscent of the second movement's wan lament. Finally, the bassoon appears to pull itself together, launching the finale with a perky and apparently light-hearted theme. Like the first movement's piccolo theme, this is eventually, after the strings and a curiously oriental-sounding episode played by Woodwind, taken up by the brass to darkly menacing effect. Yet its peroration ends up more like something from a circus ring than a magnificent procession, and the movement finally races to a hectic end. 
Program notes by guest annotator Daniel Jaffe on Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.